Friends, I, um, I know we do this um, often, but if you would just give God thanks and praise for our worship team. Um, Um, we have a true gem in Crystal, uh, and yeah. Hold on, let me put some respect on her name, Pastor Crystal, um, because Crystal not only tries to take us into the glory cloud, but she really does um, invite us to be um, beautiful worshipers. Um, it is said in what is called the Westminster Catechism, what is humankind's chief end? Um, and the response is to worship God and to glorify God forever. Well, we um, I have to be equipped to know what it looks like, to have the kind of muscles to be able to glorify God and um, to extol God. And Crystal does that in such a beautiful way. And the rest of our worship team, they uh, model beautifully what it is to keep their, their lives open uh, to the work of, um, of the Spirit within them and also through them. So uh, this morning, if you ha are visiting with us for the very first time, I want you to know that here at the Southeast Raleigh Table, we have been journeying through the book of Genesis, recognizing that some of us are going to be in and out, going on vacation throughout um, the next couple of weeks. And so we wanted to start with the first book in the Bible. For those of you who might choose to take up maybe a spiritual practice of reading scripture um, throughout the summer. Now, here's what I want you to know about the book of Genesis is that you will quickly realize that there's a whole lot going on in this book of the Bible. And without understanding, the, without understanding some of the context or the nuance within Scripture as a whole, but Genesis in particular, it can be hard to rest in the stories or to even know that you can mine at the Mount of God and have new revelations unearthed for you that might meet you where you are in your life. Sometimes if we don't understand the context or the nuance, it can actually make us feel alienated from Scripture, and in some moments, some instances, even afraid of Scripture. So um, as we are journeying through the book of Genesis, um, you will find that I want to share some ways that you might understand what is going on underneath the passage of Scripture. It might be a very simple teaching about the particular passage of Scripture, but hopefully will equip you when you are reading Scripture to draw closer as opposed to feeling far away from the text. The thing that I want you to hold on today um, either in your hearts or writing it down or however you like to hold on to information, is that Scripture is not always prescriptive. If that were the case, we would be stoning everybody. Please don't stone folks, okay? <laughs> don't be out here just stoning everybody. It's not always prescriptive. But sometimes Scripture actually is a portrayal of our lives. Like, it gives us a glimpse of how humankind shows up in the world. It helps us sometimes to get kind of have a sense of like, ah, um, human beings sometimes do certain things when they're afraid, and human beings sometimes do certain things when they want to have power over, and human beings also can do glorious things when they choose to do or broker power with. Also in um, this portrayal of our lives or the portrayal of humanity is always remembering um, how God works through our very broken stories. 
The arc of scripture is a love story. We see over and over and over again how God is pursuing us and how God works through humankind and how God even works through what we might think of as impossible human situations. So as we read scripture this morning, remember, scripture is not always prescriptive, but can be a portrayal of our lives and also a reflection of God's power in the midst of our best stories and also our more difficult stories. But really quickly, I want to do a little trivia to make sure that you all have remembered what we have talked about over the last couple of weeks. I do not have a gift for you, so don't look for me with a gift card if you get all the answers right. <laughs> so Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. And Isaac's name means, can anyone remember? Laughter. And Isaac's name is laughter. Why? Sarah laughed all up in God's face. Uh-huh. Well, at this point of the story that we're going to read in Genesis chapter 25, um, Isaac is grown. Isaac has a wife named Rebecca, and we're going to hear about um, their children, Jacob and Esau. Hear now these words. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. Can you imagine? So they named him Esau. Ooh, your baby is so... Harry. <laughs> you know you got to like practice your face, you know. Um, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. So um, he was named Jacob, which actually Jacob means like wrestling with God and wrestling with others. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he, he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Ooh, preferential favoritism. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff. That is so Scripture is so descriptive. Some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, he was called Edom. And Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die of, uh, of what use is a birthright to me. This is when hangriness gets you in trouble. <laughs> I'm hungry. Who cares about my blessing? And then Jacob says... Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. Listen, friends, the story of Esau and Jacob and of their parents, Isaac and Rebekah, is like the Ozark of, um, of Genesis. It's drama, drama. Whenever you have to start a story with, when we were in the womb, okay, like, you know it's about to be some drama. And here in the womb, these twins, Jacob and Esau, it says that they... Um, that they struggled. Actually, the, the word in Hebrew is strove, meaning that there was like no peace between them. It's not about physical fighting, but that there is something about the way in which these two men are going to interact with one another that does not speak of peace, but actually speaks of discord. And that is the arc of the story of Jacob and Esau. There is much discord between them. And oh, it's not just Jacob and Esau now. Oh, Rebecca and Isaac. Add to the family drama. Says that Rebecca favored and loved Jacob. Maybe because Jacob was more like her. And it says that, oh, Isaac really loved Esau. Maybe because he was just like him. And by the end of this story, in the midst of this family... Jacob uses a moment of weakness, hangriness, to shenago his brother Esau out of his birthright, which, friends, I want you to know in this context was no small thing. The fact that Esau was the older of the twins meant that Esau was going to get a special blessing and anointing from his father Isaac. It was going to literally, I, I use literally in all of my sermons, by the way, on brand, it was going to promise Esau that he was going to get kind of a special portion from his father. And he seemingly gives up all of this power that his father is going to give to him, this blessing, this anointing over some stew. Now, fast forward to Genesis chapter 27, which we don't have time to read, but you can read when you're sitting by the pool. Isaac prepares to give his son Esau a blessing. So the time has come for Esau to get a blessing. But Rebekah finds out about this, and she alerts Jacob. And she tells Jacob, listen, we're going to come up with a little plan here so we can get your little blessing from your daddy. Now, they come up with this whole scheme. Jacob gets the blessing, and then Esau finds out... Esau finds out, steal a blessing and find out. <laughs> when Esau finds out what Jacob has done, here is what is said in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, oh, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. All these twins. I'm going to stop here because this is not even the climax of the story. This is not even the apex of the contentiousness between Esau and Jacob. This is not even, like, it's just a small glimpse of the or reflection of the brokenness between um, these two brothers. Families in Scripture, especially in Genesis, are incredibly complicated. 
which makes understanding faith when we are told, just go to Scripture and it'll tell you everything you need to do with your family. There are some faith traditions that make it feel like all you got to do is read on some scripture and it'll help you to understand why is it so difficult for me to communicate with my family member? Why do I not feel like I belong within my family? How is it that I might draw closer to people that I don't necessarily always feel like we have things in common? Help me to understand why I was abandoned or neglected. Just, just, just go to scripture and it's going to tell you exactly. But we look, look for a perfect family in scripture and come tell me about it. So it feels a little bit fraught when we just hear all you gotta do is, and we recognize how complicated families are. In Genesis alone, when we talk about family structures, we have to contend with Cain and Abel, a brother who did take another brother's life. We have to contend with the fact that Abraham rejects one of his sons and exploits someone under his own household. We have to sit with the fact that Joseph's brothers traffic him. Sometimes the grace of Scripture is that it reminds us that our human stories with all their complexity, our family stories with all their complexity, might not be so unique. And I don't mean that your story is not sacred. Please hear me. Your story is sacred. Your lives are sacred. But when you also see the complexity of families in Scripture, you then know there's not something that's flawed specifically in you. In a world that is oftentimes trying to say, this is what a really great family looks like, and then when we look at our families and we're like, that's not how, people don't go together like that in my family. Or everyone isn't leaving behind this great inheritance. Or my siblings and I, we don't kiki it up every single day. Or my grandmother never made me cookies. Or whatever it is that now becomes like, this is the vision of what families are supposed to do. And then people start to ne ne kind of like uh, layer on top of that, because you know, scriptural. And you're like, but show me. Maybe instead, there is a grace in knowing that these generational traumas, because there are going to be some things that are going to happen between Isaac and Rebecca that look very similar to Abraham and Sarah. That the valleys that they go through, that the, the discord that they actually have to contend with, that these hard places don't always have quick fixes, where you just do this or you just do that. Or sometimes these stories remind us like the miracle of our families when our families choose to heal, when our families want to be restored, when our families move toward reconciliation, whether our chosen families or the given families. There is something, I, I want to call it a grace, and recognizing even as we read scripture to know that sometimes families are hard. Families are human. Families in Scripture are not perfect. All siblings will not get along. I want to say that to any of you who just feel like, you know, I'm not best friends with my siblings. And you feel some type of way like, am I not doing something 
Sometimes it is your parent who is your first bully. Sometimes you can feel very much that there are some people in your family who wish you were different and they're still waiting for you to change. Or they want you to be made in their image, to be a mini-me of them. And you were not meant to be that. You were meant to be your own very good that God created you to be. Sometimes our families don't let us fully be who we want to be or who God has called us to be. As one of my friends said, beware of any space where you have to check the very best parts of yourself at the door. For some of you on Thanksgiving, you literally have to check some things at the door. And it hurts because you know those things are good and beautiful and they make you glorious before the Most High God. Fast forward. If you fast forward in the story of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, there is actually a really beautiful moment in their families, but it comes after a whole lot of drama. And the moment of reconciliation or this moment that Esau and Jacob end up having later on in their lives is also too not even a perfect reflection of what it looks like to come back together. But the beautiful thing about the end of the story for this particular family is that nothing happens in the absence of God. I don't mean this to sound hokey, but I do want to tell you the point. In Genesis, there are all these characters, all of these people, all of these families, all of these stories, all of these ancestors, all of these genealogies. As Frederick Buechner said that God loves people because God loves stories, and in Genesis that is deeply reflected. But when scholars talk about who's the main character in Genesis, it is not all of these people. It's always how God is working in and through and despite and in spite the people. How God is making good of human situations or the things that feel humanly beyond us. It's not God breaking things so that God can be a victor, I, okay? Because sometimes people love that narrative. God made a whole lot of stuff be real hard for me so that God can be the victor. That's not it. It's that in the midst of human beings, sometimes choosing not to reflect the very good, God still maintains God's goodness. So that as Crystal said so beautifully, we might see that in the end, or even as we look back over the trajectory of our lives, how it is that God might have been breaking in. When your mother wasn't able to be present for you, but the person who sits behind you at cert is present for you, like God was breaking in. When you didn't always have people who told you about the glory of yourself, it was that one person in Harris Teeter who said, God, you just are glorious. And it was that one word that was manna that sustained you for the rest of your life. You start to realize, like, okay, maybe God is breaking in. Because the story is never in the absence of God. Never in the absence of God. That Ruth and Naomi get to be chosen family, which is a beautiful thing in Scripture. Oftentimes when family, family is reflected, it's always, um, it's, it's very often not in the ways in which we think about like nuclear family. That Jonathan and David become like friends like family. That we believe that when we come to the baptismal waters, that people across the globe become the body of Christ and that we're joined together as family. 
God is always working even in the arc of our stories. My favorite uncle, um, he had some pretty traumatic experiences happen in his life that should have made him a very hardened heart kind of person and maybe even a clenched fist kind of person. I don't know how God chose to weave something beautiful, a spirit of tenderness in him, but this is the uncle who just is so, I mean, will literally take a child's face in his hands and will remind you of your goodness and your grace. God somehow works even in the midst of the complications. You know, for some of us who show up on a Sunday, from Sunday to Sunday in this place, you get these new siblings. And do you know that we, we make this commitment to each other that we will do no harm? That we'll do all the good we can and that we will do no thing that will ever separate us or make us feel like we're separated from God. That's like the commitments we make when we gather in this place. It's not always tied up in a bow, what family looks like, and even in scripture, not tied up in a bow. All scripture is not prescriptive, that we can just say, let me just go there and see if I need to do this or do that. But whether in our nuclear families, or the broader family of God, we give God thanks and praise for main character energy that God brings in the midst of our human drama. This morning, um, Kiana's going to lead us in a prayer. Because I don't take it lightly uh, um, when we talk about family, what that might bring up for any of us how that might land for any of us. For some of you, you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, I give God thanks and praise for the ways in which my family has shown up for me, um, how we have chosen to yoke ourselves to peace and to goodness, and that is a, a beautiful thing. In fact, I think sometimes human families are reflective of like, like how we can be shaped and transformed to do, to do good, but sometimes that's not our stories. And so we can pray, we can either pray God that I might celebrate the miracle, or God that you might do a miracle. Um, in us this day. Families are beautiful things, um, and families are also fragile things. Um, so with that, I invite us into prayer. Um, and before we enter this prayer practice, I just want to say again as a reminder, everything we do here is by invitation and not instruction. Um, so if there are things that are bubbling up for you, um, you can opt out. It's, this is not a time where we're saying you need to address all of your family trauma right now. Um, to use this analogy, if things are um, bubbling up and the, the doorknob's getting hot, you don't need to open it right now. Um, but um, if you do want to enter this prayer practice to pray for God's healing, um, to say, to say thank you to God for your family, um, to bring whatever is coming up for you, to bring that before God, I invite you to find a posture that feels right for you. And to take a few deep breaths. 
and um, to ask, what things have come up for you in your heart or mind in worship today? What things have come up in your heart or mind in worship today? Take a minute and take some time to allow these things to surface and bring these things, these thoughts and feelings to God in prayer, knowing that there are no wrong answers. What do you want to bring before God in this moment? I invite you, if you are willing and able, um, to imagine yourself holding these things in your hands. So for you, that might be holding your hands with your palms up, as if you are really bringing your chosen family, your given family, your relationships, your friendships, as if you are really bringing that before God. And in this posture, would you ask God for what you need? Would you ask God for what you want? Maybe you want to ask for healing over a certain relationship. Maybe there is a tension, there's a pain there's a hurt that you want to present before God and say, God, I need your healing. Maybe God has done healing, like Pastor Lisa said. Maybe take this time to thank God for the ways God has shown up already in your family. in your relationships, in your community, in your village, would you name before God what it is that you need, what it is that you want? God, we bring these things before you, whether that be dreams for um, a family that actually supports us, whether it be a sense of your presence as we struggle with the idea and heartbreak of family, family that is or family that is not. God, in boldness, we ask for the things we want, like joy. We ask for things um, like freedom in our relationships. We ask for things um, like connection and love. We ask for things like a village in this season of our lives. We ask for a sense of wholeness. In this posture, again, just um, 
even if you don't have words. Sometimes the, the simplest prayer is, Lord, you know. Maybe you know what I need more than I know what I need. In this, um, in this place, God, we, we trust and believe um, that you are working in our relationships, in our friendships, in our family, in ways that we might not see. But we trust you. We want to trust you. Or maybe we don't want to trust you, but we need you. And we ask that you would do that good work in our lives. And we ask all of this in the name of the one who creates, redeems, and sustains. Amen.